Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy podcast, a deep dive into all the new episodes of today's new Star Trek. This week we're looking at episode 7 of Lower Decks entitled Much Ado About Boimler. And your hosts are the two Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick, and you might think of me as the media guy. And I'm Dr. Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy guy. Our website, we have one. You can go there. It's the Star Trek Academy dot blogspot.com and there you can find links to our social media sites and also some podcast sites where we're available and uh, as always to set the stage for our conversation we're going to start with a brief summary of the episode in case you haven't uh, seen it uh, uh, it will help you understand what we talk about later but beware there are some spoilers here and uh, this week Rodney is going to give us the episode summary All right, let's spoil the episode. So in this episode, we begin with Tendi introducing her friends to this dog she's created in the lab. This is a weird dog though. She doesn't seem to realize that this is not your normal earth dog. When Tendi leaves, this dog starts walking on the ceiling and its eyes are glowing yellow. And later on, there's a great scene where it shapeshifts into a metallic silver cube and just rolls down the corridor. Meanwhile, Freeman, Ransom, and Shax are on an away mission, germinating roulot seeds. I don't know. But anyway, the Cerritos is therefore getting a visiting captain and a few of her crew members. Boimler is wanting to impress this visiting crew, so he sees an opportunity to do that by helping Rutherford test the transporter. Rutherford is trying to cut transport time. His goal is 0.07 seconds, but he succeeds in cutting it by half a second. Unfortunately, Boimler is out of phase after the test, and he's making a loud, awful noise. And so Boimler's worried that he may not be able to impress this visiting crew after all. They show up. The visiting captain, Amina Ramsey, is a Mariner's old friend from the Academy. And Captain Ramsey remembers Mariners being an an outstanding away team member. Anyway, Ramsey finds Boimler on the bridge making this horrible noise and tells him to report to sickbay. Tana alerts Section 14 when she sees him. Section 14 deals with unsolvable space illnesses and science mysteries. She says what they're going to do is they're going to take him to the medical spa on Endochronimus 5, or otherwise known as the farm. She's also sending, unfortunately, Tendi's dog there. That's kind of sad, which Tendi has named, by the way, the dog. So the Section 14 ship named the Osler docks with Cerritos. The medical specialist comes on board, and lo and behold, it's an Adosian. But he has this sinister laugh, and his encounter with Boimler, Tendi, and the dog in the airlock is unsettling, to say the least. They board the Osler, and all the other passengers there have been the victims of some kind of accidents. And one of them says that Division 14 exists to hide, he says, mistakes that Starfleet wants to ignore. He claims that the ship they're on, the Osler, is the farm, and they're not actually going anywhere. So the passengers decide to mutiny, and they chant, his, their words, not mine, freaks fight back. And Boimler joins in, but he tattles on them later to the Edosian who grabs a phaser rifle, confronts the mutineers, and then they immediately back down. 
And uh, the Edosian medical specialist, he tells them all that Boimler ratted them out and he confines them to quarters and then leaves. So naturally, these uh, mutineers or would-be mutineers attack Boimler. Boimler somehow escapes from them, but he ends up in an airlock and he's trapped there. And just as he stops phasing, they open the airlock and Boimler rolls onto the surface of Endochronomus 5. And it's beautiful. So they spend some time there. Tendi says goodbye to the dog. But as it turns out, she knew all along that the dog had all these strange abilities, like being able to fly. But she's, of course, from Orion, and she just assumed that all Earth dogs are like that. So back on the Cerritos, Ramsey makes Mariner her first officer, though Mariner doesn't tell her she has no interest in the job. Not really surprising. Their first mission together is to go down to Quapa, this bog planet, along with three of Ramsey's officers that she's brought along with her. They are there for a second contact. They do second contacts, and they're going to repair a water filtration system. But while they're repairing the waste pipe, there's suddenly some kind of serious problem, a blockage maybe. But they don't have the tricorders they need to fix this thing because Mariner left them back on the Cerritos. Fortunately, they find another device they can use to fix the problem, and they do, and they save the day. Well, after they're done with that mission, they're supposed to rendezvous with another ship, the Rubido, but the Rubido is late. So Ramsey orders a long-range scan. This is something Mariner is supposed to do, but she doesn't seem to know how to initiate it. While she's trying to get it to go, Ramsey's Lieutenant Durga says that, well, maybe Mariner might not be the badass that Ramsey remembers. But eventually they do find the Rubido, and all of her systems are offline for some reason. Ramsey reasons that Captain Dayton of the Rubido didn't replace their energy coils, so they beam over to help. Mariner and Ramsey go off in search of the crew, but Mariner doesn't seem now to know how to use her gravity boots. Eventually, though, Durga works to bring those systems online. Meanwhile, Ramsey and Mariner are talking. Ramsey wonders aloud what happened to the capable Starfleet badass she used to know, and Mariner wonders aloud where her fun friend went. They're both disappointed, I guess. They do find Dayton and her crew apparently in a cargo bay, and they're hiding from some kind of entity. Dayton says they're inside of it, though, the entity itself, and that it feeds on power. Durga restores artificial gravity at this point, and the thing comes back, and Dayton loses it. She says, I don't want to die in space. Mariner punches her out and then directs the crew to the bridge where she thinks they can beam out. Then Ramsey realizes what's happening. Mariner is screwing up because she doesn't want to be offered a job on the Oakland, Ramsey's ship. Mariner says she doesn't want to rank up. She doesn't want to take charge. She just wants to be a great ensign. Is that so wrong? Mariner calls Rutherford for an emergency boim out, and the crew is saved. They're also out of phase, but nobody seems to mind. Mariner tells Ramsey that she wants more time as an ensign so that she can figure out who she is and what she wants to be. And that's the episode. Okay, uh, thank you for that, uh, that episode summary. And uh, next we're going to look at the individual elements, and there are a bunch of them that we'll touch on briefly. We're going to look at what they are, how they fit together, both with other things in the episode and with, with other Star Trek and sometimes some outside references. And then we'll talk in a little bit more detail about maybe the philosophy and the messages of this episode. I want to start by mentioning that this time the cold open or the teaser before the credits does relate to the rest of the episode. In the past, all but one episode has had this, this open 
but it hasn't connected to the rest of the episode. And, and this time we meet the dog in the teaser, and the dog is a character that continues later in the episode. I uh, also want to mention about the Edosian, who is the, the alien running the Division 14 transport ship, an alien who has three arms and three legs. And if you look carefully, you may note that uh, uh, this was the same species as Eryx, from the original animated series back from the 1970s. You know, it's kind of vague whether he was a navigator or a helmsman. And by the way, Eric's had a, a somewhat higher pitched voice. And so this alien in this episode had a, a deeper, a baritone, more threatening sounding voice. It is interesting that the, the captain of the, the Division 14 ship here, the Edosian, wears a mask. And a mask, of course, can be a signal of distance and it's easy to think it may be inspired by our current pandemic, but in our everyday lives, of course, is it a signal of distance or is it a symbol of caring? And uh, um, as as the captain of the ship uh, of of the people that have been affected by various accidents and things, he is deliberately set up as kind of dark and foreboding allowing the big plot twist later, his evil laugh. We find out at the end of the episode, oh, that's just how he laughs. It isn't an evil laugh, just a laugh. But it's interesting that we now know, I mean, over the years, we've seen lots of transporter accidents and things like that. And we now know that Starfleet does take care of people that have had these kinds of accidents, transporter malfunctions, other, if you will, vicissitudes of, of Starfleet life. Some other things uh, I, I noted, when Boimler's accident happened, the transporter accident, he was out of phase, and Rutherford said he was out of phase by just one millicochrin. Well, the Cochrane is a measurement that's been used all the way back to the next generation, and it is a measurement of subspace distortion. And so just very slightly distorted uh, out, out of phase. Of course, the Cochrane is named for Zephram Cochrane, who invented warp drive. Just uh, by the way, warp drive will be invented in 41 years, 41 years from now in the Star Trek timeline. Impulse engines were already invented two years ago in the Star Trek timeline. Oh, nobody told me. Yeah, uh, 2018, you should have read my blog. I mentioned it there, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, we've talked before about Mariner's age and the captain Amina Ramsey is a captain. And we know from the past that pretty much nobody gets to be a captain before around age 30, except Kirk in a different timeline, but we're not, we're not thinking about him, but Kirk was a captain at I don't know, something like 32 and you don't get to be captain much before then. But Ramsey, not only were they at the academy together, but they were in the same class at the academy together. So that means Mariner may be close to 30 years old uh, herself. And, you know, making an ensign a first officer is kind of a stretch, but the other three officers that Ramsey brought with her were only a little bit higher rank. They were lieutenants. And it appears that all of the, the higher ranking officers on Cerritos who were in the command track, for example, medical or something like that, were, were off the ship. So that, I mean, that makes sense. Given what we know about Mariner, it seems like that's what her age should be. So that makes sense. And another thing I noticed uh, about this episode, I'm wondering, and maybe, maybe you would know, Michael, with your encyclopedic knowledge of Trek, there were three female captains in this episode, Freeman, Ramsey, and Dayton. And I'm wondering if that's a Star Trek record. 
for a single episode. <laughs> I, d I don't remember multiple female captains in, in any Star Trek episode in the past. There have been, as times passed, starting in the next generation, there have been more and more. Of course, there's the uncomfortable original series episode yeah. that claimed that women can't be, but I think we have to kind of write that out of the record that there was some kind of misunderstanding there or some kind of fine print that we weren't, we weren't familiar with. But I don't remember multiple female captains particularly central to a plot in an episode before. Captain's Trinkets. Mariner said she loved the Captain's Trinkets, and, and we've seen some of them before, but there were a couple of more here. There is what appears to be, a, a, for want of a better term, I'll call it a Gorn action figure. And there's also a, a horned helmet, some kind of alien head, and I assume it's a... It's a it's it's artwork or something like that, not a real alien head, but wearing some kind of horned helmet. And uh, it kind of seemed familiar to me, but I can't place it a lot. I mean, if you look, if you just look up samurai helmets on the internet, a lot of them do have horns of one type or another, although well, that may be more fiction than real life. Yeah, but I was thinking the samurai in, in shore leave. There's a yeah. similarity there, but but no horns. Some miscellaneous things. The Borgs smell like old trash bags. And now that you think about it, that's logical. I can't imagine a Borg taking a bath <laughs> or even at least a water-based shower, and you wonder how they get clean. And, of course, there's a famous quote from Worf to the effect that, that Klingons don't bathe. You know, maybe, they, maybe you know, uh, Tana takes sonic showers. Maybe they... They take sonic showers? I don't know. I still have a little trouble imagining any Borg taking any kind of shower. Me too. Who knows? Too. There was a mention of uh, uh, the Academy professor, Saul Rubicek, and his special car. And that reminds me, it's, it's, it's almost got to be a tribute to Warehouse 13. And one of the actors was Saul Rubinek. Uh, who actually appeared in Star Trek in Next Generation in The Most Toys, but he was one of the main characters in Warehouse 13, a character called Artie. And he had, he had a special car, actually had more than one. First, he had a 1957 Jaguar, and later a 1962 Mercedes-Benz convertible. We think about special cars more recently. We think about Agent Coulson in uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but uh, Artie in Warehouse 13 had, uh, had a special car, at least one at a time, uh, also a few years ago. Wow. Uh, the Rubidoux is named after a community in Riverside County, uh, which continues the California and the California class uh, theme. And, uh, and the Rubidoux does certainly appear to be a California class ship. Right. So here's, here's another Easter egg. I'm sure a lot of people have picked up on this, that the uh, quote-unquote monster that is inside the Rubidoux looks an awful lot like the space entity that we see at the end of the TNG episode Encounter at Farpoint. And you'll remember from that episode, the Enterprise helped that entity on the planet by feeding it power. And here in this episode, this entity feeds on power as well. Uh, at least that's what Captain Dayton says. I think of it as the giant space-going jellyfish. <laughs> as they are trying to escape the Rubidoux, note that there's a child on board who Mariner picks up briefly and then hands to another crew member, presumably um, the child's mother. Uh, this child is seen very briefly in a few scenes later. You know, they made a big thing for Captain Picard in The Next Generation about not being comfortable with children on board. 
And I think it was kind of revolutionary for 1987 when Next Generation premieres, but of course our own societal expectations have changed about working parents and uh, no one has specifically said there are children on the California class ships, but it may be a subtle way of acknowledging that society here has changed. Yeah, it's something we would expect to see now, whereas back in 87, it was odd. Of course, I, I guess they were making that show for fans of the original series and there were no children on, on those ships. Right. But it's normal now, I, I suppose, as it should be. Uh, one thing I wanted to say about Rutherford, he's like the superhero in this episode. He really shines. I mean, uh, and that brought him, his purpose in the plot was to ultimately to save the crew on the Rubidoux Bridge. If he hadn't shaved half a second off transporter time, I think those people would have been crushed. So he saves the day. Uh, I also wanted to to reflect a bit on Boimler once they get to the farm, uh, because they get there and essentially he's not affected anymore by this transporter accident. And when they figure that out, he gets sent home really abruptly. And I think that's that's maybe a reflection of societal norms and expectations, but it's sort of a reversal. At the farm, if you are, for want of a better term, completely normal, they don't want you there. They send you home. People who who are different, and often it's because of space mysteries or accidents, but people who are different are often not embraced in our culture. And I think there's a message here in the reversal of how Boimler was treated because he was the nonconformist. He was not normal by virtue of being normal, if you will. He hadn't been right. afflicted by any of these things. So and later thought, on, he begs Rutherford to uh, mess him up again. Yeah, he'd like to be back in that status for, right. for a while. So that kind of leads us on into more of our philosophical grounds, our messages and morals and, and meanings uh, from this episode, and uh, where, we, where we talk a little bit more about what the messages are, the takeaway that producers want for us. So, I, yeah, I guess the main plot line of this episode is the Mariner and Ramsey plot line. Mariner senses that she's going to be offered sort of a, a permanent first officer position on the Oakland. She's offered one at least temporarily on uh, the Cerritos, but she doesn't want it. I, I thought that when she did accept it, she actually thought that Ramsey was joking. And then she found out that Ramsey was serious, but at that point she thought maybe it was too late to say no. At least that's that's how it seemed to me you know it was either either that she thought it was a joke or she was worried about how her classmate would perceive her if she just flat turned down the assignment and i think mariner uh, in spite of the way that she is so impulsive i think she is concerned about what other people think of her and she didn't want her her classmate to think negatively but then of course she changes her strategy you know i just thought of something i you're right do you remember when Durga, Lieutenant Durga, noted based on her pips that she was still an ensign mariner and you saw the expression on her face, she looked embarrassed. I think you're right. She does care about what others think about her. You know, there are there are a couple of scenes where she had a very distressed expression on her face based on however people were perceiving or or reacting to her, but in spite of that, and she's kind of done this in a, a little bit in a few past episodes, too. She almost immediately begins demonstrating irresponsibility because she doesn't want to be recruited as first officer, something that 
at least emotionally, it would probably be hard for her to turn down. Once she knows for sure that Ramsey is going to stop recruiting her, well, then she's back to her normal badass, get things done, and taking charge, punching out captains and, and all that. Uh, but I think it was really, really interesting that the resolution of the storyline is that she has stuff she needs to figure out while she's still on the lower decks about who she wants to be. And she says that she needs time to find me. And this this whole, who are we supposed to be? What kind of person are we supposed to be? That was a really common theme in Discovery Season 2. And to a certain extent, we've seen it played out, maybe not quite so overtly, but in a lot of different Star Trek stories. Right. And we've had those kinds of stories having to do with uh, rank. Um, and you pointed out in an earlier episode, Kirk regretted his decision to become an admiral. We had Shelby criticize Riker for remaining on the Enterprise as Picard's first officer. And, and if they can make those decisions, then surely Mariner can decide that she just wants to be a great ensign. Now, why does she have to rank up if she doesn't want to? So that there's a possible theme here about you know, self-determination, being able to do what you want to do in Starfleet. And if that means you know, remaining a captain or remaining an ensign, maybe the message here is that, you know, that that's, that's an important value is that people be able to, to determine for themselves how they want their lives or their careers to go. You know, and I think, I think that, that that theme of self-determination works for the story about the farm too, uh, for, that, for that subplot, because when they thought they did not have the right to make those kinds of decisions on their own because they were stuck on the ship, they did not react well to it. And by the end of the story, we found that also they, they certainly do have, it takes a long time to get there. It's a long trip, but they have the right to have, to not have things imposed on them also. So I think, I think you're right about self-determination as a theme and the two stories really do reinforce each other there. And yeah, I suppose if you took the time, you could, you know, apply this to society today. People who are, you know, different, are they able to autonomously decide? Does society allow them to decide how to uh, lead their lives in the most self-fulfilling way, or at least in the way that, that they would like to? And often society doesn't do that. Often there's the intense pressure to be the way that the broader society perceives they should be, or just that their family and friends perceive they should be. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Something else we might be able to tie into this is, is the, the space entity that bursts out of the Rubido. Ramsey says near the end of the episode that she thinks the space entity is peaceful, but also that it's in search of a home. And that led me to believe that maybe this is symbolic of Mariner, who in a way is maybe looking for a home. Mariner is at least searching maybe for a home in Starfleet. She needs to figure out uh, who she is and who she wants to be. Does she want to be a captain? Does she want to remain as an ensign? She seems very committed to Starfleet, even though she's a rule breaker, but maybe ultimately she'll decide to leave Starfleet. We don't know, but I thought maybe there was some symbolism there. I think so, uh, uh, you know, and a home, looking for a home and looking for family which I think we've talked about in the context of Mariner before. They're very closely related, of course. Right. Home, 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 and home and family, and, and those and those connections. 
the Division 14 guy um, at the end of the episode says he's sorry for the way he acted. We should have just talked it out, he said, uh, and avoided the mutiny before it happens. And, of course, that's what Boimler said to begin with. You should just talk this out. And that's that's a very strong message. It's it's really easy to get outraged uh, at someone else oh, right, and, right. and not pause to understand where they're coming from. How often do we see that in our in our world of politics and religion and things like that today, jumping, jumping to conclusions and striking back as hard as possible, rather than rather than dialogue and sharing and understanding where each other is coming from. That's a great point. I thought about that. I, I did love uh, when they land on on the uh, spa planet, and the medical specialist is there, and he's talking about how he. Maybe he should make the ostler less creepy, maybe turn on some lights. I just love that. About that, the uh, conspiracy theory, that one patient on the ostler, I was worried that maybe the writers were going to give us a gloomy Trek episode here with some sort of conspiracy within Starfleet. It, I did not like the direction it was going in, but I was delighted to find out <laughs> that the farm was exactly what I would expect from Starfleet. That was a very typical kind of plot twist that we've yep. often seen in Star Trek episodes. Yep. And in fact, I, I think every storyline in this episode had a happy ending. So the, the episode made me feel good for those reasons. Quick note here about Mike McMahon, the creator and showrunner of Lower Decks. He used to work on Rick and Morty, as we've noted before. And I've seen only one season of Rick and Morty, and but the endings of those episodes can be dark and disturbing. And I'm just very happy to see that McMahon apparently realizes that that just is not appropriate in Lower Decks. And, and uh, so I, I look forward to more uh, happy and non-disturbing endings uh, from this uh, series. So maybe the fundamental message here in this episode is just about how we relate to people who are different one way or the other. And even, you know, you know, we've talked about the, the people at the farm, they are different, uh, but even Mariner is different because she doesn't want to continue advancing in rank, which pretty much everybody else does. So how, how do we relate to those one way or her other who, who are different? So I, I saw this, when I, when I saw this idea of yours, Michael, that really helped me discover what I think is the theme here. And, and the theme is acceptance of, of those who are different, I think. And what helped me here was thinking about the dog. I was wondering, what on earth is the dog doing in this episode? And the dog is very unusual, very different. You know, will the Cerritos crew accept the dog? I suppose ultimately they did, but they just kind of ignored it. The dog was weird. Tendi obviously accepts the dog. But Tana sends the dog away. I'm, and I'm still not sure why she did that, but she just sent it away. And Tendi loves that dog, but it, at the end of the episode, Tendi encountered a an actual Earth dog that licked her face, and and Tendi rejected that dog. She thought that was gross. You know, maybe but, part of the message is here is that we don't even know how people are different. If they don't talk about it, they may have medical conditions they don't talk about. They may have some physical problems. I've never told you, but I'm going to have an MRI on my shoulder because I've got some pain there. You know, we don't, we don't know really how each other is different because 
people don't always want to call attention to how they're different. And thinking, think about children. Think about a fairly young child. You know, a child will accept differences in someone and not hardly even think about it until someone teaches them that being different is bad, which unfortunately happens a lot in our society. And yeah, Tindy had no idea what a real dog was like, so there was no evaluation of similar or different. She just thought it was darling and, you know, talked the way talked the way to this dog that everybody talks to their, to their dogs. Right. As, as weird as the dog was, I think in the end, it, it, uh, you know, Tendi was right. <laughs> I'd like to have that dog. <laughs> um, I don't know. The, the bats coming out of its head may, might be a disadvantage. We, we don't know what happened. Eyeball bats. Yeah. <laughs> They're the patients aboard the Osler. That one patient was uh, convinced that Starfleet was not going to accept them and was just going to hide them away so as not to jeopardize the allegiance of Starfleet officers. But Starfleet does accept them and gives them apparently a, a place where they can stay. But, you know, th- while they're there, they, they unite under the label freaks. That's what they call themselves. And somewhat disturbingly, that's what Tendi calls them too. And she just wants to get uh, the dog away from them while they're, while they're on the Osler. And I, I wasn't comfortable with the term freaks. And I'm, most terms that we would use for someone who is different, particularly if it's a physical or a mental difference, I'm not comfortable with. Um, even though in this case, they refer to themselves as freaks. And on the one hand, you know, philosophically, it's just a word and words should not hurt you but words do have symbolic meaning and it, it, it's hard to decide what, what the right word is to say other than just acknowledging you know, different people have differences and some differences are maybe more unusual than, than others. Right, and for, for the listeners out there, uh, Michael and I, we had a discussion about this before we started recording, uh, what, what terms to use. Um, and we didn't come up with good answers. No, I, I'm not sure we came up with answers that we're happy with, uh, but we're we're trying. Further developing this theme about acceptance, Mariner, we, we didn't know whether she was going to accept the visiting crew or not. Uh, the last thing she wanted was a another Jellicoe. Who was um, an extremely disliked captain from The Next Generation. Uh, he was... It was a two-part continued episode, and he was he was abrasive, and and people didn't didn't like him. In a way, though, to use the terminology from this episode, a visiting captain is also kind of sort of a freak, someone who's out of the ordinary, someone who's different from what from what they're used to. So even that might fit into this this broader theme. Definitely, definitely. We're wondering if the uh, if the, will the visiting crew accept Mariner? And I guess after our conversation here, Mariner was worried about the very same thing. We know that Durga. I don't think Durga accepted her, and not not without reason. You know, given how you know Mariner was trying to take a dive, as Ramsey put it. Boimler obviously wanted to be accepted by the visiting captain. He's always looking for a new butt to kiss, as uh, Mariner put it. <laughs> What about Mariner and Ramsey accepting each other after having their careers in Starfleet? That was a bit of a struggle for them. Also, the space entity appear, apparently destroyed the Rubido, but uh, Ramsey and I suppose Starfleet accepted it in that they let it go in peace. They acknowledged its right to exist. So it seems to me 
thanks to the initial spark you gave me here, Michael, that, that <laughs> acceptance was a big theme, maybe the theme in this particular episode. Kind of as a final thought, I like this episode. I mean, good messages and things there, but I, I particularly like the further character development of Mariner. We learn more about her backstory. She was really sharp, really excellent at the Academy. Uh, great potential. And at least she knows herself well enough to know, and maybe she's only figured it out during these episodes we've seen, but she knows herself well enough to know that she does have some things she needs to figure out about who she is, about what kind of person she wants to be. You might say what kind of person she's supposed to be. But on the other hand, I think that she she wants to delay that reckoning. She isn't ready to make the decisions now. She wants to, I think it's more than just procrastination, but she wants to delay those decisions. See, now that's an interesting idea. I mean, that that's some really good, I see some really good potential layers for some further character development, right? I mean, uh, if that's true, why does she want to delay that reckoning? What's going on that would uh, make her not necessarily put it off? It's not merely procrastination, but uh, that, that'd be interesting to explore, don't you think? Um, do you remember the Toys R Us theme, the jingle, I don't want to grow up? I don't know if I remember I don't want that. to grow up. I want to be a Toys R, Toys R Us kid. And <laughs> plus, plus you'll remember Peter Pan, right? Peter Pan didn't want to grow up. He wanted to stay, right? not exactly stay a child, but stay in this world of adventure that, that he enjoyed so much. And I think that, that Mariner does get rewards from doing the stuff she does as an ensign. And she may not be sure that, well, and she's already had some experience and been demoted being a lieutenant. She's not sure that she would get those same rewards and maybe not sure she would be able to make the same kind of difference as as someone who is working her way up the up the rank structure. Right. And you remember at one point she, Mariner basically said, look, I wouldn't want somebody like Durga bothering me every five minutes, right? And I, I, I guess that captains have a lot of a lot to put up with, you know, having to be on call all the time, picking out chairs for their uh, ready rooms and conference rooms, right? Do we get the leather stripe down the middle or don't we? Uh, Although to be honest, put up with that yeah, stuff. to be honest, being on call 24 hours a day is the first officer's job. First officer will only wake the captain up for for the most important stuff. But yeah, it's it's a different life. And you know, we've seen in previous Star Trek that captains and senior officers can make a big difference. Uh, they can do important stuff and I think they can do rewarding stuff. But uh, maybe Mariner sees that, but she's not sure about the intermediate grades. If she could jump right to captain, mm -hmm. maybe she'd be happy. But, uh, you know, the working oh, your see. way up through, you got to spend a decade or so as a lieutenant and lieutenant commander, and then a few years as commander before you can get to the captain's chair. And maybe she's not sure about that journey. Right. So you're saying that the, at the, you, you know, if she were to be um, Ramsey's first officer, she would be responsible for a lot of those duties that she's just would not be interested in. I mean, we've never, Star Trek has never really given us a job description of the first officer, but the first officer is... They lead away teams. Well, well, they lead away teams, point. but they're also in charge of, I mean, in, in other military organizations, you'd have a vice commander and a chief of staff. 
but in in Starfleet, you you just you have the the first officer, who who is as much an administrator as anything. Yeah, you go yeah. on the on on that, but but you handle discipline, you handle uh, paperwork, uh, you handle duty scheduling, rosters. duty rosters, all that kind of thing, and may not all be done personally by that one person. Uh, because a first officer will probably have aides and things like that, but it's not all the the excitement and the adventure that we more often see the first officer doing. It's there's a lot of behind the scenes administrative and management type stuff that we've right. seen that Mariner doesn't care for that much. Right. No, I was just thinking. Can you imagine Mariner being responsible for that? She would be miserable. She would hate it at this point in her life. But we will see how her story how her story arc continues we have what three more episodes this season and i think they're already working on season two so we will see how her character arc and those of the other main characters develop also right looking forward to it all right well uh thank you for joining us this week i guess that about wraps it up uh just to remind you the star trek academy podcast we respond to new episodes of star trek airing now on uh, cbs all access Soon to be Paramount Plus, I guess. Um, we're doing Lower Decks now. We'll do Discovery later this fall. And you can find new episodes at the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And you can find links to podcatching software at that site as well. So be here again next week for the Starfleet Academy podcast. <laughs>